Chapter twenty six of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter twenty six. Home Questions. Coralie sat late over her private diary the clocks had struck one before she closed the book and put it away in the box where she kept her money and her few trinkets under lock and key she slept little that night and the sleep she had was disturbed by troubled dreams that interview between her father and her uncle had left a sense of bitter degradation in her mind she had never really loved her father there had been nothing between them but the bond of relationship a bond which he had shown himself very glad to loosen yet he was her father a part of her existence the only being upon whom she had any strong claim and it tortured her to think of the degradation that reflected upon herself to be the daughter of such a father there was the sting to hear him ask for money and to hear him so heartlessly refused by his one and only brother little as she liked penrith there had been that in his tone which told her that he had some justification for his brutality and she was to go on living under the roof of this man she hubert urquhart's daughter or to go back to the dreary existence from which lady penrith had rescued her oh, if only coverdale had cared for me she sighed again and again in her restless turnings and tossings while the inexorable clock ticked and the night lamp flickered and then she thought as many a woman thinks when the future lies dark before her lit by not one gleam of hope thought of what her life might have been if this man had chosen her for his wife it was all very well to write of him scoffingly as a prim pattern of the uninteresting virtues in her heart of hearts she revered him for those qualities at which she scoffed the gulf that lay between them was bridged over by her growing interest in her his personality she had begun by thinking of him only as a good match heir to title and fortune a man with a word who could change the whole tenor of her existence she knew now by the blank his absence made in that house by her jealous despair at his too evident regard for lady penrith a regard of which he himself may be hardly conscious she knew now that she loved him and that if he had been an impecunious curate she would have been content to share his life and let fortune go 
but who would marry herbert urquhart's daughter she asked herself even if i were ever so handsome there would be that against me and a plain daughter i must have been mad to ever hope she was in the breakfast-room early neat and fresh-looking in her smart tailored gown and with no indication save a heavy look in her eyelids of her miserable night her uncle had gone out before breakfast lady penrith talked a little more than she had done at dinner on the previous evening but was evidently anxious and expectant a telegram was brought to her in the middle of breakfast and coralie could see that her aunt's hand trembled as she tore open the envelope let the messenger wait her ladyship told the servant after she had read the new message twice over with profound attention no bad news i hope my dear said lady selina oh no a telegram nowadays does not imply bad news of course not but in this remote place you can't have many trivial telegrams invitations acceptances excuses the sort of thing one gets in london no not that kind of thing lady penrith answered absently as she put the message in her pocket on her aunt asking her if she was going for a drive in the morning or afternoon lady penrith answered no she had a good many letters to write and was not going out all day you and cora can have the barouche or the pony cart whichever you prefer she added thank you neither i have not quite gotten over my influenza cold and the only inducement to drive would have been your company complimentary to me after my patient endurance of the old creature thought coralie and then she said in her clear young voice in that case i shall go for a long walk directly after breakfast you won't be angry with me if i should be late for luncheon will you aunt your aunt has been so irregular herself lately that she can hardly find fault with you for unpunctuality lady selina remarked somewhat snappishly any deviation from the clockwork round of daily life was an offence to this lady angry cora certainly not said lady penrith but on what tremendous pilgrimage are you going it is not ten and you think you won't be home at two oh i'm going for a long tramp towards the sea i am longing for the wind off the sea you can get that in this garden too much of it for the poor flowers ah but not like the wind one gets on the very edge of the sea along allen bay or at st jude's for example lady penrith gave a little start at the mention of st jude's a movement 
which did not escape Coralie. I may go as far as Ardliston, she continued. It is just the grey, breezy morning I adore. Do as you like, Cora, only don't fatigue yourself, Lady Penrith said carelessly as she left the room. Now, if I were a pretty girl, mused Cora, she would hardly let me ramble for three or four hours alone. There would be suspicions of a lover. I might be going to meet someone, but in my case there can be no such danger. An ugly woman is what Caesar's wife ought to have been, above suspicion. Miss Urquhart had told the truth for once, in the way, albeit, she was a young person who preferred falsehood. She was going to Ardliston in quest of her father. After that conversation of yesterday evening, she felt that she must see him, must question him, at any hazard of hard words. She could no longer exist in this cloud of ignorance. She stopped on the crest of a wind-blown ridge, hugged her neat little cloth jacket tighter round her, and looked back at the grey towers of Calander Castle. What a noble old place it was, originally a rude border fortress, enlarged and improved by successive generations. Sybil Higginson's money had set the final touches on the picture, Whatever was wanting of convenience or dignity had been supplied within the last ten years. The gardens and the terraces had been extended. A spacious palm-house had been built in the one angle where it would not be a blot upon the rugged grandeur of the exterior. And within doors there had been improvements in every detail. Money had been spent like water. And she's not even a tenant for life, mused Coralie. If my uncle were to die tomorrow, she would be houseless, so far as yonder the great pile is concerned, or the house in Berkeley Square. Hard lines to spend one's money upon somebody else's property. But then she can afford to waste a few thousands, and she has Ellerslie House standing ready to receive her if she were to leave the castle ellerslie house what a difference between the spick and span modern house built by a self-made millionaire and that grey fortress over there which seems to still echo with the tramp of armed feet and the blare of trumpets coralie turned her back upon the grey towers after that contemplative pause and tramped steadily on with her face to the sea it was a long walk from the castle to ardliston but miss urquhart was a good walker well broken in by the weary promenades of madame michon's pupils in the bois or along the chalky roads in the white suburbs that skirt the bois and later, by lonely wanderings in West End, London, rambles which were her sole respite 
from the dullness of the lodging-house at the back of piccadilly she met only one shepherd-boy between the castle and the beginning of the long straggling street of ardliston and ardliston itself might have been asleep for any signs of life or movement except at the schools where she heard the sing-song voices of the children chanting the multiplication table a sound that told her that it was not yet noon and saved her the trouble of looking at her watch her father might have gone back to london by the night mail or by an early morning train she thought in which case she would be much disappointed she wanted to see him wanted to question him about the past though she knew not how she would venture to shape her questions but she had helped him had watched for him she had sacrificed her own instincts of loyalty and honour at his bidding and she had a right to his confidence i will do no more for him unless he trusts me fully she said to herself no he had not left the higginson's arms the landlady who was busy in the little bar on the one side of the entrance recognized coralie come to see a pa miss he's very late this morning you'll find him at breakfast she came out of her snug little nest among the bottles and glasses and ushered coralie into a sitting-room where she found her father reading a newspaper at the breakfast-table he rose startled at seeing her oh, what brings you here so early anything new no nothing very important ten minutes to twelve do you call that early early enough for a man who is such a beastly bad sleeper that he seldom gets a wink of sleep until daylight sit down cora do you like some tea it was made a few minutes ago he poured out a cup and handed to it to her with some show of attentiveness while she sat looking at him dumbly full of thought he looked haggard and careworn older than his elder brother and it seemed to her that all the indications of a debased character were stamped upon his countenance the furtive eye the tightened lips the curious twitch of the nostril now and then before he began to speak well he asked when he had mixed a brandy and soda for himself what's your news she told him briefly how mr coverdale had left the castle with lady penrith yesterday morning and had not returned with her in the afternoon what kind of man is this coverdale a good man good don't quite follow your meaning that seemed likely enough coralie thought conscientious and god-fearing he is devoted to lady penrith but even for her sake he would do nothing that was not strictly honourable so you think he has gone upon some kind of mission for her 
I think so. She had a telegram this morning at breakfast, a long message, which I fancy may have been from him. What's the use of fancies? Might have been from her dressmaker. Had you the sense to find out where it came from? No, I was not near enough to see it. I could only see that she was agitated at receiving it. Huh. That tells me nothing. Well, I'll keep your eyes open, Cora, and let no detail of her daily life escape your observation. The straws show which way the wind blows. Try to find out where the parson has gone. Are you going to stay here much longer? That depends on circumstances. I have no particular inducement to go anywhere else just now. I may go farther north, perhaps for a little shooting, but I have made no plans yet. There was a silence of some minutes. Urquhart took up the newspaper and read, or pretended to read. Cora felt it was easier to begin upon a painful subject now that his face was hidden. Father, I was crossing the hall from the drawing-room to the billiard-room yesterday afternoon when you and my uncle were talking, and I could not help hearing a good deal. You mean you couldn't help listening. Your curiosity got the better of your good breeding, retorted Urquhart, throwing down the paper and turning to his daughter with an angry scowl. And you heard all that passed between my affectionate brother and me? Well, who cares? I care very much. I have been broken-hearted ever since. You need not waste your emotions on me. I have a pretty tough hide. It is toughened in a long experience of hard knocks. Father, what odious things he said of you! And you did not deny them. Why should I trouble myself? He is not judge or jury. I wanted help, and he did not want to help me. The easiest way of refusing was to be abusive. You are woman of the world enough to comprehend that, I hope, Cora. No, I am not. I can't comprehend that you should let him say such things. If I had knocked him down, there would have been a scene and a scandal. You would have found yourself homeless. I know of no other way of dealing with him. But that you should ask him for money, importune him, swallow all his insults. Father, what degradation there is in that. Hmm. Degradation, yes, perhaps. And you wonder that I should put myself in the way of being insulted. You wonder that I should beg of my brother, who married the heiress I was trying to marry, the woman who cared not one straw for either of us. You wonder that I should ask him to open his wife's coffers for me. You are a fool, Cora. A man hemmed round with debt distracted for want of money as i am 
isn't likely to be scrupulous as to the mode or manner of getting it. Don't whine about what you heard yesterday. You may think yourself lucky if I don't turn forger or highwayman, sign her ladyship's name to a stolen check, or hold up a train carrying bullion. What might a man not do at his wit's end as I am? And my elder brother has the command of eighty thousand a year for his wife denies him nothing and won't give me eight hundred or eighty or eight pounds that's what brotherly love means nowadays cora very much like the ointment upon aaron's head ain't it why does he hate you what did you do to offend him nothing we both courted the same woman he won her by a fluke unintentionally by sheer ill luck i helped him to win her he ought to be grateful to me but he ain't he finds it cheaper to ride the high horse and blackguard me but there must have been something father on your part some cruel wrong some act of treachery that gives my uncle and his wife the right to hold themselves aloof from you ah she chooses to fancy herself wronged he takes advantage of the position come cora i'm not going to be questioned about my past life by my own daughter and i am not going to act as your spy any more unless you give me your confidence Cora answered resolutely, looking her father full in the face. There was no filial love in that look. If she felt his degradation strongly, it was because the degradation was reflected upon her. To be the daughter of such a man, to live on sufferance in a house whose threshold he was not allowed to cross, that was the sting it was her own pride that was hurt she had borne the brunt of poverty and suffered from shabby frocks and school bills in arrear but never till yesterday evening had her father's fallen state been brought home to her spy that's a most unpleasant word cora and you seem to repeat it with gusto simply because it is unpleasant i asked you to keep your ears and eyes open in penrith's house in her ladyship's interest because of your friendship for her that was the fable you imposed upon me fable and imposed he shrugged his shoulders with a light scornfulness as if such words hurt him very little even from a daughter's lips and then he rose and walked to the window but i am to be hoodwinked no longer pursued cora impetuously i know now that you hate her do i asked mr urquhart drumming on the pane 
with his back turned upon his daughter. If I do, it's only the hate that every strong-natured man feels for the woman he loved in vain. She had but to marry me, and I would have been the most docile and devoted of husbands, her head-servant out of livery. But, you see, she preferred my brother, and so I can't expect to go on loving her forever. He has treated me like a pariah dog, and she has treated me no better, which is short-sighted on her part, for she should at least remember that I am heir presumptive, and that if anything should happen to me or to Penrith, all of her grandeurs would pass to me. It doesn't matter to him, for his rights and interests in this life must be over and done with before mine could begin. But it would matter to her to the extent of two fine houses and a large domain and all the money she has sunk upon them. Must they go with the title? Both houses? asked Cora, her indignation lapsing suddenly into interest. The castle and Penrith House, Mayfair, both go with the title. He was born in one, the heir, at the castle, and, of course, an occasion for bonfires in all the hills, and roasted oxen, and kilderkins of strong beer, for which my father could very ill afford. I was born in the other, and I doubt if the household had so much as an extra bottle of wine to celebrate my nativity. Yes, the house in London must go, whenever Penrith goes, and all her ladyship has spent upon it, something like thirty thousand pounds, I believe, will go to the heir, whoever he might be. Heir presumptive has a grand look against your name in the peerage, said Cora, waxing bitter again. But I don't think you have much chance of outliving my uncle. Bar accidents, none. But the bursting of a gun, the running down of a yacht, a smash on the railway, a fall from his horse, anything of that sort, would be as big a fluke for me as his marriage was for him. But I don't expect it. Drumming louder with fingertips whose sharp touch denoted nervous irritability. Expect it, did I say? I know it will never happen. I am one of those men who come into the world with bad luck branded on their foreheads. There's no such thing as bad luck, father. It's the idlest nonsense to talk in that strain. You inherited a younger brother's portion, and you squandered it. You married foolishly, before you were of age, offended your father, spoilt your chance of a fortune with a wife. You lived recklessly. You loaded your shoulders with debt. You have never struggled or worked as other men of good race and small means have done. You should have gone to the bar, or into politics, or to the colonies. There must have been some career open to you, something better than the miserable life you are leading. A beggar 
to the brother who hates you, a beggar, and refused with contumely. She brushed away her tears, so rare, and those cold grey eyes, tears of shame and mortification. Have you nothing more to say? sneered her father. This this moral lecture might be continued ad infinitum the daughter's rebuke of the reprobate father a very pretty subject and offering fine scope for the prosy and the trite well i will say no more i know that all lamentations over the irrevocable are worse than useless let the past be the past only if you want my help in the future you must let me into your secrets why are you keeping this watch upon your brother's wife why for my own satisfaction she is my enemy and would injure me if she could <laughs> but how can she injure you what could she do never mind that cora knowledge is power and it suits me to be informed of all that happens at the castle. Trust me, then. Be frank, if you can. What was your quarrel with Lady Penrith? Why does she hate you? Pooh. It was a silly girl's hatred to begin with. She was madly in love with her cousin, who murdered Sir Joseph's adopted daughter in a fit of epileptic rage. Is it certain that he was the murderer? Certain, yes. He was found almost in the act of murder, his hands and clothes stained with her blood. There is no room for doubt. Miss Higginson visited him in the lock-up yonder, a wretched hole, that was done away with soon after. I found her there and helped in his escape. Was indeed the chief means of getting him away. And when the boat, on board which I put him, was wrecked in a gale that was only beginning when the boat started, she laid his death at my door. But that was the only cause of her dislike? Penrith accused you of trying to win her by the basest means, trading on her ignorance of life. Rot. People in the neighborhood looked coldly at her after that escapade at the lock-up. Her conduct was too unconventional to escape slander. I may have somewhat magnified the village scandal when I urged her to marry me, but I wanted her to feel the need of a husband to defend her good name. <laughs> a shabby trick, and it failed. Yes, it failed. The turtle dove. For Brandon Mountfort, she had been a very dove turned upon me like a tigress she flung herself into my brother's arms partly from sheer malignity to me 
and partly because she knew that whatever scandal there had been would be best covered by a coronet. <laughs> well, it was a shabby business. However, I'm glad I know the past, but I can't understand the situation in the present. Why should you fear her? Why should you watch her? That's my affair. I shan't answer any more questions. He turned and faced her again, frowningly. I won't trouble you any more, except to ask you how long you are going to stay here. I don't know. Perhaps for a few days. Perhaps only a few hours. Look here, Cora. If anything out of the common should happen at the castle, you had better come here, as you have done this morning, on the chance of finding me. On reflection, I am inclined to wait till the parson's return from his mysterious mission. You think his mission may have something to do with you? I don't say that but I should like to know the meaning of it. I rely on your shrewdness for that. Come, Cora, there's no use in riding your high horse. Remember that your interests are interwoven with mine. Anything that hurts me must hurt you. <sighs> yes, I know that, she answered with a sigh. Your disgrace is my disgrace. It wraps me round like a dark cloud. I live and move in it. This was no idle complaint on her part. The burden of her father's evil reputation had seemed to her a much heavier load since she had known John Coverdale, who, without self-assertion of any kind, had impressed her with the idea of what an honourable man's life and mind ought to be, how fair a record the one, how high a standard the other, and in that pure atmosphere of noble thought and lofty aspiration, how foul and grim her father's character looked. End of Chapter 26